0: You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, the NOM. Welcome to episode 30 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Paneris, and after last episode's brief detour into another work of literature and another war altogether, it's time to get back to looking at the comics that I'll I'll be doing so with issue number 26, which takes place in late February of 1968, during which I Wonder What She's Doing Tonight by Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart was a top 10 hit. Peaking at number eight. Our story, Old Acquaintance, was written by Doug Murray, penciled by Wayne Van Zandt, inked by Jeff Fisherwood, lettered and colored by Phil Felix, the consulting editor was Larry Hama, Don Daly was the editor, Pat Redding was the managing editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. The issue was cover dated January of 1989, and it came out on December of 27th of 1988. This is another milestone issue because... Well, the price went up. In this issue, the price goes from $1.25 to $1.50. We opened in late February 1968, and the 23rd Infantry moves to its new base of operations. Ice is reading the paper. It says to Clark that about 5,000 V.C. were killed in Hue alone, and he asks what he thinks. Clark, who was there, tells a little bit of the story about what he experienced in Hue, including finding a mass grave with hundreds of V.C., Ice says there's nothing about that in the paper, and Clark says that of course not, because that's the type of stuff that Uncle Sugar doesn't want them to see. Ader asks where Tainan, which is where they're headed, is located. Clark says it's probably near the Cambodian border, and then asks to read his Fantastic Four comic when he's done with it. Ice is still quiet, and when asked about why, he says that if they're lying to the troops, then what are they doing to the people back home? We then go back home, where at the same time, in the student lounge at Columbia University, one time Corporal Ed Marks watches the 6 o'clock news, which tells the same story about 5,000 VC being killed in Hue. Professor comes in and says, more fiction from Westmoreland, hey? Eh? He and Ed then get, get into what is fact and what is fiction as far as the war is concerned. The professor intimates that the communist atrocities reported are... Quote, cooked stories in a sense, and Ed tells him about how they found a village of slaughtered people way back in issue number five, and a time that they also found a large mass grave. He then talks about how Napalm saved their butts all the time. The professor pontificates about how naive Ed is, especially considering that all the money going to napalm and weapons could be going to the poor. It seems like Ed's alone in his opinion, and he's not happy as he breaks a pencil in half. On the next page, another pencil breaks in half, and we see Top cursing as he tries to fill out paperwork. Working for him in the Philippines is Mr. Lewin, and it seems like he's up to his usual stuff as they receive a shipment of women's shoes. So Top is probably selling them on the black market, or to Amelda Marcos, but... Who knows? Inside Top's office, Lewin sees the latest Stars and Stripes and asks Top if he was in the NAM. Top tells Lewin about Rob and how about how he helped him and made him his company clerk although it didn't work out because well, Rob was never happy. Lewin wonders aloud what Top did to get assigned to this post in the Philippines. Rob, by the way, is in Fort Bliss, Texas, sweating his butt off at the firing range with the men he's training. He's walking with a cane now, and he and the guy with him talk about the latest story out of Huey. Rob tells him a story about one of the times that the VC broke a Christmas truce. Then he says it's stupid to argue about what the papers say anyway. The two then leave the range and get some cokes from a coke machine. Elsewhere in America, Thomas is sitting around with a group of fellow comics fans, and they start talking about creating something called a comic convention. Thomas is then bumped and spills his coke all over a stack of books. He holds up a vintage tales from the crypt that's soggy and says, I'll replace it! We then cut to elsewhere where it's raining and someone asks Sarge if the stories about the U.S. taking a beating are true. Sarge says they've been fighting a, quote, phantom war against an enemy who never shows his face in a climate. Well, you'll see about the climate, with weapons made from the lowest bid, the, the lowest, mind you, and we still beat the suckers. Even with all that, the only ones we can't beat are the politicians and the newspapers, and they're going to finish us off. Mark my words, we'll lose this war, and we'll lose it in the press. And then they head for some warmth and shelter. Back in Vietnam in at in a POW camp, Jerry Rabinarine and his fellow inmates are made to stand in line and hear their captors tell them that the North victory is imminent. The inmates wonder if it's true, and Rabinarine says it probably is because they haven't lied to them yet. Finally, on the last page, we see Frank Virgil in a bed in a mental hospital. A doctor asks, "He seems the same. Has there been any change?" A nurse responds, "None at all. He's been exactly like this for months." The doctor says. I don't think the war will ever end for this one," to which the nurse replies, "And for a lot of others, Doctor, too many others." I like that Doug Murray has been periodically bringing us back to the first group of soldiers we saw at the beginning of the series. We always had a vested interest in them, and it's a great way for him to show the war's aftermath and its effects on people instead of doing something like showing generic characters or doing a, quote, "very special issue. We know it's about our guys because the cover, which is by Ron Wagner, shows a photograph of Ed, Rob, Top, Frank, and Thomas among various objects on a desk, like an ashtray, matches, and a coin. Ed Marx is the obvious first choice because he was the reader, so to speak. And since he's still so young, sending him to college is a very good idea, especially Columbia, which was a hotbed of student protests, especially in April of 68, where student protesters took over the campus for about a week and then another round of protests toward the end of May. Of course, Ed has a much different perspective than the people he's talking to, and I think that Murray is doing his best to provide that particular voice because it's an angle that isn't used very much when we talk about people at home and their thoughts about the war. Marx, in fact, I think provides a bit of a gray area in the argument, especially since we're so used to seeing the black and white of it all. It's also a great character development for Marx. I know that we'll keep seeing him later on. He'll be developed even more. And since it's every once in a while, this does feel on some level like we're catching up with an old friend. It's great to see what the other guys are up to, even if it's not necessarily central to the overall narrative. The scene with Thomas is pretty funny, and the scene with Frank is inappropriately having note on which to end. And of course, Top hasn't changed at all why would he? In fact, this is something that we'll see play out way later in the series as well. And I know I'm gushing, but this issue is comforting in a way, even if it does get serious with the Ramnerine story and the scene with Frank at the hospital at the very end. It's old friends while our current friends are in transition, and in the next issue, we'll get to those guys. The art as it has been whenever Wayne Van Zant and Jeff Isherwood are on the book together, is excellent. Although it took me a couple of looks to realize that Sarge was Sergeant Poclau from the beginning of the series, but that's a minor quibble in what's overall an outstanding issue. So I'm going to take a break, and I'll be back with historical context, letters, and ads.
1: What's wrong, Star Wars fans? Disney. Disney killed... The expanded universe. They killed the whole thing. It's dead. Every single book. Not just the novels, but the comics. And the video games, too. It's like they're just stories, and Disney threw them out like stories. I hate them. Okay... Star Wars fans, relax, here, have a snickers. No one destroyed your Star Wars Expanded Universe, in fact, I'm going to give you a whole new opportunity to go back and explore all those books and comics that have helped to shape and mold this universe we love so much. Join me on the Star Wars SagaCast, where I'll be walking through the various branches of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, much of it for my very first time. I'll be bringing you short episodes that review comics, longer episodes that explore the novels, and in-film commentaries, because you know you're just dying to hear what some random guy on the internet has to say about movies that you've seen a hundred times before. You know you are, so come along for The Star Wars Saga Cast at thestarwarssagacast.com.
0: Before I get into the historical context, I have to get into a couple of things that are specifically shown in the comic. On page 2, Ice and Clark are reading Tropic Lightning News, which is the newsletter of the 25th Infantry Division, the parent company of the 23rd. On page 3, Ader is reading Fantastic Four number 71, which is a Stan Lee-scripted Jack Kirby pencil story, and so it ends, which is billed on its cover as a sizzling big action issue. To Wayne Van Zant's credit, this is another historically accurate Marvel reference because it did have a February 1968 cover date, although it came out on November 9th, 1967, according to Mike's Amazing World of Marvel Comics. On page 19, there is a scene with Thomas sitting around a table with his fellow comic geeks, and he spills his soda on a couple of comic books, interrupting their comments about playing a comic convention. It was around this time that in Detroit, you have the Detroit Triple Fanfare, which was some of, were some of the earliest comic conventions. And one of the Triple Fanfare's sh- founders, Dorf, would go on to found the San Diego Comic-Con in 1970. So Thomas is right on the ground floor of what's become quite the phenomenon these days, that is, when he's not destroying comics. The comics that we do see on the table are various Marvel comics, including Tales of Suspense, a couple of EC books such as Tales from the Crypt, and an issue of Action Comics. And finally, the Battle Hoof Way is what's being discussed several times over in this issue, as it was winding down as the issue takes place, and the 5,000 NVA reported killed are the official casualties listed by the United States military. According to the History Place, which is a major source of historical context here, in the Battle of Hue during the Tet, 12,000 NVA and Viet Cong troops stormed the lightly defended historical city, then began systematic executions over over 3,000, quote, enemies of the people, including South Vietnamese government officials, captured South Vietnamese officers, and Catholic priests. South Vietnamese troops and three U.S. Marine battalions counterattacked and engaged in the heaviest fighting of the entire Tet Offensive. They retake the old Imperial city, house by house, street by street, aided by American air and artillery strikes. On February 24th, United States Marines occupy the Imperial Palace in the heart of the Citadel, and the battle soon ends with a North Vietnamese defeat. American losses are at 142 Marines killed, 857 wounded, 74 U.S. Army killed and 507 wounded. South Vietnamese suffer 384 killed and 1,830 wounded. NVA Kilder put it at over 5,000. Now, as far as the actual historical context and events surrounding the war in February 68, we have covered actually quite a bit of this since there's an overlap of sorts in this issue. In fact, I'm pretty sure I covered most of what I just read about the Battle of Way, but it's been a couple of episodes, so I guess it's good to refresh. But I'll pick up with historical context in the next episode, and while this definitely makes my look at 26 one of the shorter episodes of the series... I will now go ahead and get to letters and ads. Incoming this month, we have a letter from Jefferson P. Schweikhafer of San Diego. He says he likes to rebuild Maudlin's autobiographical and illustrated bit of history, World War II history, up front uh, every once in a while. And he tells a story about his dad. He says, this made me think, my father served in World War II, but he isn't a veteran. He's a postmaster, retired, and a cattle rancher about... Eleven head in a nice shady corner of the backcountry. My uncle served in the Korean War, but he but he is a veteran. He's a blacksmith. The notion, as Maudlin portrays it, is that in earlier wars the service was temporary, and once the world was safe for democracy, everything would go back to normal. Like General George Washington standing down from his service to take up his true cor- calling as a farmer. An American's calling has never been really military. Just as we don't really have or ought to have working or laboring class so we don't really have nor want a military class. But the label seems to have stuck to Vietnam veterans. It's as if they're veterans first, and mechanics, pilots, secretaries, doctors, programmers, comedians, clerks, managers, and comic book scripters second. Like Uncle Willie and Joe and my father and and uncle, Vietnam vets have been denied the full ability to put down their guns and take off their badges. It isn't anything horribly obvious. There isn't any nasty shunning... While standing in line at the post office, as there was shortly after our withdrawal from the war. But quote, what did you do in the war, Daddy? has been replaced as hey, you were in Vietnam, weren't you? In a way that it helps define the kind of social class. I don't know if this is an original observation, probably not, and I don't know what it pretends. I didn't bring it up in order to be judgmental, just to mention something I thought you observed. You guys were on draw a great comic, thank you. Jefferson uh, P. Sweikhaffer. Doug says, uh, "You make a very good point, and one that says a lot about the Vietnam War. I think it is such a, it is very much a question of blaming the messenger for the news. People don't want to think about Vietnam. We lost, and they think that by pigeonholing the men who fought that war, they can make it go away. I think that concept stinks, and I question whether POWs and MIA's from World War One and Two would have got would have been allowed to be forgotten as the ones from Vietnam have been." The war split this country and it hasn't grown together yet. Maybe someday it will, with the help of people like you and the other readers of this comic. Thanks for the thoughts, Doug. Jamie Johnson from Coal Valley, Illinois writes, In Incoming from NOM 22, Sergeant Paul Schoenberger wrote that only real tragedy of the NOM war was that no one, absolutely no one, ever went up to a NOM vet and said, you did a good job. Well, this is a totally inaccurate statement. When an older cousin of mine just came back from the NAM, my dad shook his hand and said thanks, and he appreciated what he had done for our country. I realized that most NAM vets were treated very poorly upon their return, but don't give younger readers the impression that everyone in the country hated the returning vets, because I'm sure my dad, a Korean War vet himself, wasn't the only person to thank a Vietnam vet for the great service he performed. Uh, Doug says, your point is well taken, though. I think that Sergeant Schoenberg was actually referring to the public in general and its representatives rather than individuals. I do wonder, though, did your father actually give such a greeting to vets outside his family? Too often, family members were welcomed back by their own and ignored by everyone else. Nonetheless, your father sounds like a good man, and many thanks to him and all those like him for making things just a little better for the returning vets. Uh, Chris George of Carlsbad, California, asks if Aussie vets, because they were in issue one, um, were treated better or worse than, uh, than American ones, and Doug and says to the best of his knowledge, they were treated well by the countrymen. Jonathan Poole points out a couple of mistakes. Uh, he says, at one point, Daniels is talking to a private who just set off a mine. There was no reason for it. All unnecessary talking was banned during missions. He said another mistake throughout the magazine is that U.S. troops all have long hair. All U.S. troops had to have a haircut. Doug says, Dear Jonathan, while it's true that troops were not supposed to talk on missions, they did anyway. Human nature is such that men cannot keep quiet for days on end, and the rules are made by other men who had never actually really been in the field. As for the haircuts, crew cuts were given to all military types in basic training, mostly to control lice and scalp disease while the troops were packed into large training companies. Hair length generally got longer the further from the basic from basic you got, and in the field, it was as long as you could get away with. Again, rules were made by non-combatants and made to be broken, okay? Joseph Oleski from Philly says that you took a brave stand in issue number 22 by showing the, quote, other army, in favorable light. To many people, the VC were inhuman killing machines with no conscience whatsoever. Your story sympathizes with them, showing that they were just as good as the American fighting men, and at least one aspect were better. At least they had a goal of uniting Vietnam. All we had was the insurance that our government knew exactly what it was doing. Obviously, this war wasn't enough. Without clear-cut answers to problems, the solutions became more confusing. The U.S. was confused. The enemy wasn't. They wanted to reunite their land. No amount of American firepower was going to stop them. NAM notes this time around. Okay, Troops, the 23rd has moved to Tainan, the provincial capital on the border of Cambodia. The war is about to change as the event of Tet spread from the NAM back to the world. For the moment, here are a few new ones for you. Area of operation. The area of any unit is responsible for. Their AO is a part of Vietnam and protects and fights in. AO sizes are determined by size and strength of the corresponding unit. Bought the farm, died. The Farm refers to that six-by-six six plot we all end up in, The Grave. Charlie is VC, the enemy. Uncle Sugar is Uncle Sam, the good US of A. And the world is the place where Uncle Sugar lives or back back home. That's it for now. Obviously, there was more war than just the fighting. The guys at home were in the world fought too. In their own way, more about Marx and others in the future. If you want it, write and tell us. All right, and ads this month. We have the uh, Ultra Games Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ad with, uh, with the other games that we've seen a couple of times. The ads still tend to repeat. Uh, we have the Nook Lookmon No Wires Freedom Stick Wireless Remote Control ad again. Terrific news, arcade classics to play at home uh, from, from Nintendo. Uh, Magmax and Cycross, super exciting outer space video games you can play at home for the first time ever. Uh, you take the control of Magmax, Mag the giant robot warrior, fight a three headed mechanical space monster, and Cycross. You race a super space bike through an army of enemy suicide bikers. Um, and you could also look through the other- these other FCI video thrillers, such as Dr. Chaos, Ultimate Exodus, Xanax, and Lunar Pool. Xanax. Very close to Xanax, right? Now take your favorite Nintendo titles with you any anywhere. Play game and watch Nintendo game and watch. let you play Donkey Kong or Super Mario Brothers. Was these these LCD ones? Were like you had? I think so. You could choose twenty four different titles. This wasn't like the Game Boy. This was a precursor. I think it was LCD games where it was like you know three moves and uh, they had Tiger games like this. I a friend of mine had these. They were probably kind of. Kind of dumb. Um, Top Gun, real engine powered model airplane. You can fly. Yeah. You know, so basically, yeah, you know, just to fly the airplane. It looks like you're holding it by a string. I'm sure that this got lost or broken. It, it looks like an F-14 with a propeller on it, though. Though it's kind of that's kind of silly. Uh, but I guess I can't. You, you can't attach a jet engine to a model airplane. <laughs> Uh, there's a Forgotten Realms game ad, territorial expansions, so um more maps, accessory sets, exciting novels, uh, just kind of expansion packs and stuff. The Welcome to Basic Training D and D ad that would run for years. Bolt pen bulletins this month, apparently Reagan. Mentioned the Daily Spider Man strip and an address to the nation or a news conference or something. Something about Marvel's assistant editors going on a workshop thing, and then the uh, the DC softball team, the DC Bullets, uh, beat the Marvel bullpenners in softball on July fourteenth. So they're going to play at Se- September eighth at Central Park. <laughs> Below the bulletin bulletins is the Quick Shots or Hot Shots joystick ad for Nintendo. There were a lot of accessory joysticks and stuff for uh, Nintendo and PCs and stuff. And this is this kid with this kind of smirk and comically oversized aviator glasses on with a t-shirt or something. Looking very, very late 80s. Looking... You know, I'm surprised there's not a laser background. Ooh, coming to TV this fall, premiering October 1st and 2nd, the Marvel Action Universe. You got RoboCop. You've got, I don't know who that is, and you've got Spidey. Um, Yeah, this is like right around the time they also had uh, that float in the Macy's Day Parade from what I remember. I don't think I watched the RoboCop cartoon. I probably should have, though. No, Marvel subscription ad says, there's something fishy going on here, and Namor's flying in and says, you mean me? No, we're talking about the Marvel subscription ad, and he's and he says, that's a whale of a cell. <sighs> well, a whale's a mammal, Namor. Anyway, Aquaman would know that a whale's a mammal. Namor. And in the inside back cover, we have the Monster Cereals. We have Fruit, Frankenberry, Count Chocula, and Yummy Mummy. And on the back cover, we have an ad for the Taito Nintendo games. Bubble Bobble, Renegade, Sky Shark, and Operation Wolf. This ad would run, or similar ads would run, for quite a while. That's it for the NOM number 26. That's it for this episode of In Country. Come back in two weeks when I will have the next issue of the series. And until then, thanks for listening. Take care. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The NOM the nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright marvel comics and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and i make no money off of it no infringement is intended images clips and show notes can be found at pop culture affidavit which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as i occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of the Nam.